You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the NASM Optima Virtual Conference. I'm excited to have you here for my talk on tools for fat loss, diet breaks, and diet refeeds. You might have heard the term. It's uh, quite popular in the field of sports nutrition and nutrition in general, uh, as some of the newer research has come out over the last few years into how to implement these different strategies into successful fat loss. So we're gonna talk about these a little bit further in a little more detail. I'll share the agenda with you shortly. But uh, before we do that, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, introduce myself just briefly. I went a little ahead of myself there, but uh, I'm an associate professor of uh, kinesiology over at California State University, San Bernardino. My name is Guillermo Escalante. Uh, I have a doctor of science in athletic training I also hold a uh, certificate in athletic training uh, as an ATC through the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm also a strength and conditioning specialist through the National Strength and Conditioning Association, as well as a certified sports nutritionist through the International Society of Sports Nutrition. In addition to my roles uh, in, as a professor and all of my research duties, I also have the opportunity to serve as an associate editor for the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition and it's quite an exciting role because I get to, to read some of the most uh, cutting edge research being conducted in the field of sports nutrition. I get to send it out to different peer reviewers and I finally get to make the, the final decision as to whether we're going to accept or reject that article for publication into our journal. Uh, but without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and discuss our topic here and uh, I'm going to share the agenda with you. So you can see uh, how we're going to roll forward over the next uh, 55 minutes or so. So first and foremost, we're going to understand the basic fundamentals of fat loss and metabolism. It's important to understand the basic principles because if you don't understand the basic principles, you don't really understand how uh, these concepts are going to work. Next, we're going to differentiate between continuous ener energy restriction and various type of uh, intermittent energy restriction strategies. So you may have heard the term intermittent fasting. That's actually one type of intermittent energy restriction. Diet refeeds and diet breaks actually fall under, the, under that same type of umbrella, uh, but they are indeed a little bit different. So we're gonna discuss the difference between the regular continuous dieting versus the, this intermittent energy restriction strategy. Next, we're gonna define the differences between cheat meals, cheat days, diet refeeds, and diet breaks. Often people use these terms interchangeably but they are indeed quite different. And uh, we're gonna define to see what, what the differences are. And next we're gonna get into the physiology into how the diet repeats and how the diet breaks work. How can they potentially help us be more successful at reaching that ultimate fat loss goal? 
Next, we're going to explain the pros and cons of using the diet breaks and diet repeats because uh, they're not necessarily applicable to every person. And there are some benefits and there are also some cons to why you want to implement these. And again, they're not suited for everybody. And lastly, we're going to discuss some practical applications of implementing these strategies so you can actually see how they may work in, in real life when you're actually working with different clients. So I'm excited to share this with you. And before we move forward, we're going to talk about that basic, how does fat loss work? And you probably heard all the way back from high school, you remember, well, how do you lose weight? Well, it's really pretty easy. It means basically eat less, move more. Uh, the principle here is defined clearly in calories in, calories out. We often shorten that as psycho. So calories in, calories out is the energy balance equation. Nothing fancy about it. And in fact, this is how all diets work. Uh, in, in order for you to lose body fat, you have to have a negative caloric balance. If you don't have energy deficit, you will not lose weight. And it sounds very simple on the surface, but it's actually quite complex. As you're going to see underneath the surface, there are a lot of different things that are going to influence the calories in, calories out part of the equation. And this is indeed how these diet refeeds and diet breaks work is that they actually help to potentially facilitate some of those processes and attenuate what occurs during a continuous energy restriction type of diet. Uh, so the basic energy equation, again, eat, eat less, move more, lose weight. So if basically you create a deficit, you're going to lose weight. Or if you eat more, move less, well, you're going to gain weight. So you, you need to balance that equation to do it. Now, before we move forward, I want to go ahead and discuss uh, weight loss versus fat loss because people use these terms interchangeably, but they are actually a little bit different. So uh, remember that our body is made up of a bunch of different compounds. So we have body fat. We also have muscle, but a large percentage of our body is actually water. So about 70% of our water, in, at least in muscle, is actually water for the average individual walking around anywhere from 50 to 60, 65% of the whole body is actually water. So a lot of times when we lose weight, we actually are indeed losing some water weight in that. Uh, now there are other components to that as well. We have glycogen. So glycogen is the way that our muscles and our liver stores carbohydrate. So glycogen is found in liver. Glycogen is found in muscle and they contribute some of the weight. Uh, of course, we have fat, but we have different types of fat. So fat is stored, for example, subcutaneously between the, the skin and between the muscle layer. Uh, fat is also stored viscerally, which is behind the abdominal wall surrounding those organs. And that's actually the worst place to have the, the fat. But that's where a lot of people do store some of it. Uh, it's called central obesity. Uh, and then we also have uh, intra. Uh, intracellular fat within the muscle. So intramuscular triglycerides. So this is the fat that is actually found within the muscle. You think of a piece of steak, uh, you have leaner pieces of steak and less lean pieces of steak, but you see some fat structures within the, within the muscle itself. Uh, so obviously somebody that's got a high amount of intracellular triglyceride, um, then they're going to have, uh, it's going to be a fattier type of muscle content versus somebody that's a little bit leaner. So within muscle itself, we actually have uh, some fat itself. So basically we have water, we have uh, this uh, intramuscular fat, we have the subcutaneous fat, we have the visceral fat. Uh, I'm not even talking about the other types of adipose tissue because there are various of those. Uh, 
our nervous system is lined with fat. So there's essential fat. There's actually fat in bone as well. Uh, so fat is really throughout the system. Um, and when we talk about weight loss, uh, we often just think of it's just fat or muscle, but it's not. When you, when you lose weight, you, you're losing some of these other things. So really the goal of a fat loss program is to maintain as much muscle mass as possible. So if you can maintain the good stuff, the lean body mass, uh, you're going to naturally lose some. But if you start losing some of the muscle protein, uh, that is not successful for, for fat loss. Uh, so we want to make sure that we, we lose fat, not necessarily just weight, because there is a difference. So now let's go ahead and move forward into this calories in, calories out part of the equation. Uh, so as you can see, the calories out, uh, this is the same as your total daily energy expenditure. So this stands for how many calories are you burning and, and how are you burning those? So there are different layers. This pyramid does a nice job in describing the different layers. The first one is your RMR, which stands for your resting metabolic rate. So your resting metabolic rate, as you can see on the pyramid there, it actually takes the largest component of your total daily energy expenditure. Uh, it might be anywhere from 50 to 60, maybe even 70% of your total daily energy expenditure. So what is your resting metabolic rate? Well, very easily explained is the amount of calories you burn at rest doing nothing. If you were to, to just lay in bed all day and not move, uh, you would be still burning calories. Well, our body's gonna need calories uh, for what? It's gonna need calories for you to breathe. It's gonna need calories for your heart to beat. It's gonna need calories for you to do these basic living activities. You still have to think and process information if uh, you, you move a little bit, you're gonna have to activate the muscle to be able to do that. So this is your, your resting metabolic expenditure. Now, unfortunately, your resting metabolic expenditure is somewhat predetermined. If you're a very big person, very tall, very muscular versus very petite, you're gonna have naturally a higher resting metabolic rate because you have more body that uh, requires uh, care and requires energy. So this is one part uh, of, of uh, the resting metabolic uh, rate that's very important. Now, uh, obviously we can manipulate a lot of those things and we can manipulate some of those things. So some we can, some we, we cannot. Uh, the amount of muscle mass that we have, we can manipulate. Muscle is more metabolically active than fat. And to give you an example in terms of uh, how much more, well, one pound of muscle burns about roughly six calories per hour. Whereas one pound of fat only burns about two calories per hour. So you can see that if you have more muscle mass over time, you're going to burn uh, every pound that you add of muscle, you're going to get to burn an extra six calories, six calories, six calories. So you compare somebody who's got 50 pounds more muscle mass versus somebody who doesn't, they can actually burn significantly more calories than that. Now, it's not necessarily feasible for you to be able to gain 20, 30, 40, or 50 pounds of muscle in a short period of time. Uh, it, it takes years to develop that. Now, if you begin uh, an adequate strength training program, uh, you know, if you gain 10 or 15 pounds of, uh, of muscle mass in the first year, you're doing fantastic. Uh, and now that doesn't mean that your, your metabolism doubles, but it does mean that your metabolism increases somewhat and then now you can actually eat a little bit more because your calorie expenditure is a little bit more. But other things impact your resting metabolic rate as well. For example, your hormones are gonna impact your resting metabolic rate. There are different thyroid hormones, your uh, anabolic hormones, things like testosterone, 
uh, your catabolic hormones, things like cortisol, they're going to impact your resting metabolic rate. Uh, there are various other hormones, which we'll talk about in, in brief as we go on in the talk, that are going to impact your resting metabolic rate as well. Um, genetics have something to do with it. And you may people here say, I have a bad metabolism or a slow metabolism, or I have a, a, a very fast metabolism. And uh, there is a little bit of truth to that. Typically, somebody who's got more muscle mass uh, is going to typically have a higher resting metabolic rate. But realistically, for most healthy individuals, their metabolism is just fine. Uh, it's really uh, their, how they're measuring things and then the other parts of the metabolism where they're not necessarily burning the calories that, they're, that they need to be burning to be able to maintain their body weight where they want to maintain it or lose body fat the way that they want to lose body fat. <clears throat> the next component of the uh, total daily energy expenditure stands for NEAT. This is your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's a big mouthful. It's a big word for something very simple, but this is basically the amount of calories that you burn to do stuff around uh, of, of activities of daily living. So this would be things like brushing your teeth, taking a shower, uh, walking from your house to your car, from your car to work, uh, going to the grocery store, gardening, cleaning, uh, getting dressed. These are all non-exercise activity thermogenic uh, activities. And this is where a lot of people don't pay attention People often pay attention to only the exercise part. And you can see the exercise part is definitely important, but it's not necessarily the most important because your non-exercise activity thermogenesis accounts for a lot of your total daily energy expenditure. So if you exercise great, let's say you exercise an hour a day, but you're very inactive. So instead of taking the, taking the stairs, you take the elevator. Instead of finding the parking spot that's furthest away, you find the parking lot, the parking space that's closest to you. Instead of cleaning your house, you hire somebody to clean your house. Instead of doing the gardening, you have somebody do the gardening for you. So all of these different activities now, uh, you decrease your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, and uh, you're not necessarily moving as much throughout the day, which accounts for a big part of your metabolism. So one part of a successful weight loss program, yes, exercise is something we wanna address, but often focusing on the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So in other words, how active are you the rest of your day? So somebody who, uh, let's say, is a, is a waiter, is on their feet all day, they're going to have a very high meat. Whereas somebody who's an accountant or a professor, myself, I have to be very careful with my meat because when I'm sitting behind a computer all day and I'm writing something, uh, I might go three, four hours without moving and I realize I haven't moved for my seat. So if I can actually implement a, a little strategy where I can get up, I can move, I can go get a drink of water, walk down the hall. Now I can actually increase my step down. You add that over and over, over an eight or 10 hour work period. Now all of a sudden I burned an extra 100, 200 calories by doing these little things. So non-exercise activity thermogenesis is very important. And the last thing that I'm gonna discuss with this is these, these include the little things such as uh, do you fidget when you're in your chair? Some people are moving all the time and they're fidgety. They have a higher need. Uh, when you listen to music, do you, do you stand like a statue? Or maybe do you kind of beat your head? Do you sing a little bit? Do you dance a little bit? If you're moving around a little bit, you're going to have a higher need. But what's really amazing about our body is that your body will naturally decrease its non-exercise activity thermogenesis when you're in a caloric deficit. So when you're when you're not consuming enough calories your body will say i want to i want to basically 
be as efficient as possible with my movement. So I want to try to expend as little calories as possible. So it, it becomes very, very stingy. And as a result, without you even thinking about it, your need will decrease. So that's why it's very important to be conscientious about your need. The next component is your TEF. So TEF stands for the thermogenic effect of food. So this is the amount of calories that you burn to actually process the food that you eat. So naturally, whenever you're on a diet, if you're used to eating, say, 3,000 calories a day, and now you're only eating 2,000 calories a day, creating that surplus, well, part of what's going to get influenced and reduced is going to be the thermogenic effect of food. Why? Because before you were, it, it cost your body a certain amount of calories to process through eating 3,000 calories. Now it's only going to cost your body significantly less to process only 2,000 calories. So the act of diet alone, dieting alone is going to impact your calories out part of the equation because the thermogenic effect of food is less. Also, what you eat makes a difference because different foods have different thermogenic effects of food. For example, protein has the highest thermogenic effect of food, which is why you're going to find out a little bit later in these slides why having an adequate protein intake is a very key component for a successful fat loss strategy. Uh, so if you have a higher protein intake, uh, you're going to basically burn more calories to process that protein. So typically protein takes about 20 to 30% of the calories you eat from protein are actually going to get burned to process that under the tap. So that means if you need 100 calories of protein, 20 to 30 of those calories, you're really not consuming per se, because your body's going to use it to burn it. On the other side of the equation, fat has a very low cap. So the thermogenic effect of fat is only two to 3%. So if you eat 100 calories of pure fat, you're going to, uh, you're going to actually only use two or three calories to process that fat. So when you compare 100 calories of protein versus 100 calories of fat, uh, the, the net difference between the two is in the favor of fat in the bad direction, meaning you're going to keep a lot of those calories that you consume from the fat versus the calories that you consume from the protein. The next one is your carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are kind of the middle of the road, so they're not as good as protein. They're not as bad as fat. Most carbohydrates have a thermogenic effect of food of about five to six percent. Uh, the exception to those are the fibrous carbohydrates that are higher in fiber. Those actually sit uh, a little bit closer to the protein side, not quite as high, but maybe around 15, 20 percent. So when you consume foods that are higher in fiber, higher in protein, your TEP increases. Um, and then therefore, TEP can be can be something that's that's impacted as part of your your total daily energy expenditure. And then the last part of your total daily energy expenditure is your exercise. So you can see uh, the only people that really burn a significant amount of their, their energy from exercise are those that are uh, probably doing two, three hours of activity a day. So a marathon runner, uh, an Ironman triathlete that's training maybe two, three, four hours a day, collegiate athletes that are working out two, three hours a day. They may have a one hour lifting session in the morning and a two hour practice session where they're doing conditioning and their drills in the afternoon. So their exercise activity thermogenesis is significantly higher than somebody who just goes to the gym 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Um, so this, all of these kind of uh, contribute. One thing I want to mention about exercise is that the intensity of the exercise also makes a difference because higher intensity exercise has, what, has what's, uh, what's called a higher 
excess post-oxygen consumption, which means that you're going to burn more calories to recover from that exercise. So very vigorous exercise, a high-intensity interval training session, you're doing sprints, you are doing uh, some heavy resistance training. Uh, there's a very high metabolic cost for your body to recover from that workout, and that, that, that's going to that's gonna burn more calories compared to just doing a 20 or 30-minute walk. Not to say that neither is, is, is bad, but you need to kind of balance that into what kind of exercise it is that you're doing. So you can see that this, uh, this uh, calories out equation is quite complex to begin with. Now we have the calories in component. And, and what is the calories in? Well, this is actually pretty easy. It's basically all calorie containing foods and drinks. Now, uh, there are some issues with the calories in component because uh, often what people do, and actually if you read the research, you'll actually see that people often uh, over-report how much they, they burn and they under-report how much they take in, which leads to a natural problem of people thinking that they can't lose weight eating so little food, when in fact, maybe they're just not tracking things correctly. So why is it that, that we, we underestimate the amount of food that we eat? Well, it, it's various reasons, right? It's, it's not necessarily because you're lying or you're lying to your nutritionist or to your dietitian or to your trainer, because that would make no sense. But maybe it's something like you're unaware of the portions. So you don't know what a portion is supposed to look like. And therefore, you may think it, it may be a four ounce piece of chicken, but you're actually eating an eight ounce piece of chicken. Uh, so this is one reason where you, you, you may actually accidentally underestimate how much you're eating. Other things is not counting the little things. So you may be doing a great job counting all the things that you're, that you're eating, but maybe you're forgetting that you're, you're putting a dressing on your salad that's very high in calorie. Or maybe you're using some sort of spread on your, on your wheat bread in the morning. Uh, maybe the beverages. Maybe you're not realizing that this particular tea that you like has 100 calories for, for every serving that you have. Or maybe it's this diet, so or not the diet soda, but the regular soda. Um, well, if you if you go for a, a supersized type uh, soda, uh, that may have six or eight hundred calories, depending on how many ounces are in that soda. If it's not a not a diet soda, so and, and maybe you didn't consume that, but you still have to account for it. Uh, and then lastly, you're going to be things such as seasonings. Uh, some seasonings uh, are very low calorie, but some seasonings. If, if the first two ingredients, if one of the first two ingredients is sugar, um, not necessarily that sugar is bad for you, but if you have a high amount of that seasoning on your food, uh, now you actually consume extra calories, primarily in the form of sugar that you maybe didn't account for. Uh, the other reason may be that you're unaware of how the food is prepared. So unless you're cooking it yourself, uh, you don't know what's, what's in it. So what kind of oils are put in there? What kind of seasonings are put in there? What kind of spreads are put in there? And therefore, you may think that you're getting a, a vegetable that at, at, at this restaurant that you go through and you think, I'm just getting broccoli. Well, what they didn't tell you was that they put a ton of oil or butter inside of that broccoli. And that's why it tastes so much better than it tastes whenever you make it at home because they put all these extra seasonings or or butters or, uh, or oils in it to, to uh, improve the, the palatability of it. Uh, but now this broccoli that you think maybe has 30 calories, I just had some broccoli, but now that, that same broccoli has two or 300 calories in it. So you don't know how it's prepared. And then lastly is inaccurate measurement of the intake. So one of my favorite examples to do this uh, is 
to uh, have people basically look at uh, uh, two tablespoons of peanut butter and actually weigh out two tablespoons of peanut butter. Two tablespoons of peanut butter, you may be measuring with a tablespoon, but unless you're carefully measuring it and, and weighing it, you might actually be doing the wrong amount. Eyeballing two tablespoons of peanut butter, you may actually be doing double or triple the servings because if you actually weigh it, two tablespoons of peanut butter should weigh about 32 grams. So 32 grams, if you actually see what 32 grams looks like once you weigh it, you're gonna see that more than likely you've been eating double or triple the serving size in your peanut butter. Uh, there are also a lot of things that are gonna be uh, affecting your calories in. So stress or anxiety, some people are stress eaters, some people are anxious eaters. So uh, they're gonna be unconsciously eating this extra food without them knowing it. Uh, environmental factors, so maybe it's hot, maybe it's cold, and that may trigger certain things for you to consume more of this food. Uh, if you're if you're around certain peers or certain family members, uh, you know different cultures. Uh, being brought up as a Hispanic male, it's it, in the Hispanic culture. It's it's very customary to eat more, eat more, uh, and finish everything on your plate, and to have seconds and have thirds. So uh, certain situations, it's going to be kind of part of the culture. Uh, or maybe you go out with friends where this is kind of part of what you do, and then this is going to definitely affect your calories in. Uh, other things are going to be hormones. So during a weight loss process, for example, um, certain hormones are going to decrease or increase. Uh, so uh, ghrelin levels are one, are one of the levels that typically increase significantly the more you diet. And ghrelin actually stimulates you to want to eat more. So there's a hormonal component uh, to that. Uh, and then it, it could also, uh, you know, maybe uh, when you were when you were growing up, uh, you, whenever you rewarded yourself, you did something right, you, re you got a reward with food. So you may be continuing this now into your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, and you have the same relationship with food uh, to, to help kind of curb your moods. <clears throat> I'm gonna share the next screen with you here. So as you can see here from uh, the, the big discussion that I, dis that I talked about calories in, calories out, I like to use this description here where we have this glacier on top. It sounds like a very simple equation, calories in, calories out, and it's just a little piece of ice. But realistically, underneath that water, there's this gigantic glacier of, of stuff that's going in there. So we have a lot of different things that are going to impact the calories in, calories out, Part of the equation. Uh, one of the components that you often see with uh, weight loss over a period of time is you get this term known as metabolic adaptation. It's also known as adaptive thermogenesis. So basically, as I stated before, your, your body becomes more efficient at doing less activity or, or more activity with less calories. So this is not necessarily a good thing. And basically, the definition of metabolic adaptation is that the decrease in calories in your in your in your overall metabolic rate is not necessarily explained simply by the amount of fat-free mass that you lost. So basically, you're 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 burning less calories throughout the day, and it's not explained simply by oh because I lost some muscle mass in there or lost some lean body mass in there or I'm just a smaller person. Uh, that has something to do with it because obviously the more you diet the slower your metabolism is going to become because there's less of you, right? So if you have less fat mass, even fat is metabolically active and hopefully you're not losing as much lean body mass or, or muscle mass, but you may be losing some of that as well. 
But there are a lot of things here that influence these this calories in, calories out uh, part of the equation. Uh, so for example, your as you diet more, your ghrelin levels, I already mentioned this hormone, um, and, and ghrelin, I remind, I'm reminded by the hormone ghrelin because it makes your stomach growl. Uh, and basically, when your body releases more ghrelin, it's going to make your stomach growl. It's going to want you to get more food. As you decrease your fat stores, your, your body's going to release less leptin. Leptin is a satiety hormone. So whenever your hormone levels are higher, um, then that, this means that you're going you're gonna to feel somewhat more satisfied more frequently. But as you diet for a longer period of time, your leptin level decrease, which is going to impact your calories in, calories out part of the equation. Uh, so there are a lot of different things that are going to uh, be impacting this. Um, we have your thyroid hormones, for example, uh, TSH, T3, T4. Uh, these are going to all impact your, your overall metabolism. Uh, testosterone is an anabolic hormone. Cortisol is a catabolic hormone. Estradiol is another sex hormone. But when all of these are influenced, all of these ultimately are going to influence your overall cycle, calories in, calories out, part of the equation. And at the end, what does it mean? It means you're going to be hungrier. It means you're going to uh, you're going to be eating less food. Your thermogenic effect of food is going to be going down as your body weight decreases. Your total daily energy expenditure is going to decrease. But at the end, it's kind of a protective mechanism where your body's going to try to conserve as much energy as possible, and it's going to try to get you to eat more. So you you have this uphill battle uh, from this very simple calories in, calories out part of the equation. <clears throat> So now let's talk about how some of these different diet protocols may actually help. Uh, the term intermittent uh, versus continuous energy restriction. Let's define those. So continuous energy re restriction is very easy. It's a consistent and sustained caloric deficit. So the example I gave earlier was somebody, uh, let's say, burns 3,000 calories a day for their RMR, for their activities, for their exercise, and that's their maintenance. So a con continuous energy restriction would mean that they cut maybe 500 calories or 1,000 calories a day, and they consistently do that for a period of uh, eight weeks, 12 weeks, 20 weeks, however long that, that may be. Uh, and it's just a daily thing. So you don't fluctuate. You're always eating at this deficit that's a consistent deficit over time. The other end of the spectrum is known as the intermittent energy restriction. And as it sounds, it basically means uh, a calorie restriction followed by eating and maintenance for some part, of, uh, some, some, some part of the time. And there's different things that fall into the umbrella of this intermittent energy restriction. One is intermittent fasting, which you may have heard a lot. We're not gonna spend very much time talking about it here because that would be a whole nother talk. But intermittent fasting falls under the intermittent energy restriction. I'll give you a few examples of them. One of the common ones is known as alternate, alternate day fasting, where you basically fast for 24 hours and then you eat as you normally would for 24 hours. And then you, you follow that procedure uh, over a course of time. Now, I'm gonna say one very important thing for intermittent energy restriction to work, any one of them, at the end of the week or time period, you still have to have, a, have created a deficit. So if you basically make up your calories, I'm gonna use this example again of the 3000 calories. If it's 3000 calories to maintain, the only way that the alternate day fasting would work would be if, uh, let's say on day one, when they're fasting, maybe they only consume zero calories. Technically as a fast, you should actually consume no food. 
uh, and then maybe just water. And then for the next day, you can eat ad libitum. But if you ate 6,000 calories on day two and you made up for the calories that you didn't eat on day one, you're, you're going to stay in the same place. However, if you only ate, say, 2,000 calories or 2,500 calories or even your 3,000 calories, you still created a deficit on that on that other day. So uh, you're going to create a deficit on a daily basis. Every other day you have a deficit, essentially a 3,000 calorie deficit, and then you eat at maintenance on the other day. So you created a deficit. So in the end, this is uh, one approach. Uh, and then we also have whole day fasting where you actually do one to two 20 hour fasts followed by five to six days of maintenance. So this is not alternated. So it's a little bit uh, not quite as tough as the day before as the, the one before the alternate day fasting, because there you're doing it every other day here. You're only doing it for one or two days a week. But the principle still applies that at the end of that week, you still need to create a deficit for you to be successful. A very popular one now is the time restricted feeding where you basically do a 16 to 20 hour fast and then followed by a four to eight hour window. So basically this works for a lot of people because it's kind of, they don't have to think about it. They say, I'm only going to eat in this four hour window or in this eight hour window. And then that's the food that you get, whatever food you get in those eight hours or those four hours, that's it. The rest of the time you're just supposed to basically drink water. Uh, and that's a very easy to control your, your calories. But again, you have to have a deficit. Otherwise, if you're, if you're over, if you're stuffing your face over that eight hour period and you're eating uh, well above maintenance uh, calories, then you're not going to be successful. But the two strategies that fall in here are also diet breaks and diet repeats. And I'm going to define those here in the next slide. So we talked about defining these different types of, of terms. So cheat meal versus cheat day versus diet refeed versus diet break. So a cheat meal is as it sounds. Basically, you're not counting anything. Uh, you're not concerned how many grams of fat, how many grams of protein, how many calories does it have? It's just one meal and you're just going to go feast and enjoy it and not think about it. That's basically what a cheat meal is. Um, a cheat day is just kind of is a, is kind of a consecutive cheat meals put together. So now it's not just one meal of eating whatever you want as much as you want. It's basically a whole day of, of feasting with however much food you want. So you're going to be uh, and then there's nothing that's off limits here. So if you want to eat pancakes, if you want to eat, uh, if you want to eat fried chicken, if you want to eat pizza, if you want to eat burgers and fries, that's on that cheat day. So it's a string of cheat meals uh, put together that are kind of out of the, the normally uh, healthier, uh, prob probably better options in terms of nutrient density and lower calorie density. Now, the next term is the diet refeed. So diet refeeds are basically there. You can have a cheat meal be a diet refeed if you if you can program it into it. So a diet refeed is it's a very uh, specific type of increasing your food intake for the day. So it basically means you just you if you're in a deficit, you're going to basically refeed your body to maintenance calories or maybe just slightly above your maintenance calories. So going to this uh, 3000 calorie person again, so if, if they maintain at 3000 calories a day, maybe they diet at 2000 calories a day, Monday through Friday. And then on Saturday and Sunday, uh, they don't necessarily overeat a ton of stuff. They just basically eat at 3000 calories. So they're not in a, in a deficit, but they're not overeating either. 
So this would be what a diet refeed is. It's basically one to three days is usually the way we like to classify them of, of not being in a deficit. Now, if you want to uh, have your, your a cheat meal within part of that to make it fit into your overall daily expenditure, you can do that. In fact, so there are, there are ways in which you can implement your diet refeed into, into a cheat meal or your cheat meal into your diet refeed rather. So there are some ways in which you can actually do that. But you have to make sure that you're accounting for everything that, that, you're, that you're eating. The difference with that cheat meal is that uh, you're not really calculating anything. You're just going for it. The last one is the diet break. So the diet break is basically you may go a week with calorie restriction, and then you go for a week at calorie maintenance. Then you go for a week at restriction. Then you go for a week of maintenance. So it's a string of four or more days of essentially diet refeeds. And the diet refeeds uh, basically mean that, again, you're not overeating. It's not a cheat day where you're getting as many calories as you can. You're basically just trying to get your calories to maintenance component. So this is how a diet break works. And uh, I want to, it's important to mention that the, the research has shown that the best type of food to eat in your refeed is to basically increase your carbohydrate intake. So when, whenever you're, if you're dieting at 2000 calories a day, Whenever you eat up your, you go up to 3000 calories a day, most of those calories should come primarily in the form of carbohydrates. Same thing with your diet breaks. So let's talk a little bit about these studies here. Uh, so one of the studies that was done on diet repeats was done by Dr. Campbell, uh, and it was just published this year. So they took 27 resistance trained males and females, average age was about 25 years old, uh, they were about an average height, average weight. They weren't overly muscular. They weren't necessarily uh, overweight uh, or obese. Uh, and they measured uh, several variables. They measured body mass. They measured fat mass. They measured fat-free mass. They measured dry fat-free mass. They measured resting metabolic rate. And in a subsample of them, they actually measured the leptin levels to see what occurred with those. So uh, what is dry fat-free mass, you may ask? So I told you that fat-free mass is basically everything in the body that's not fat. Uh, and then dry fat-free mass, remember I told you that muscle is about 70% water. So they actually measured the, each individual's total body water. And then they, they took that out of the fat-free mass to give them what's called the dry fat-free mass. And this is actually a very nice way of doing the experiment because it allows you to see changes in actual true, uh, closer to true muscle tissue rather than just changes in water weight. So this was a really neat part of that study and that they were able to do that. So what they did with these participants is they basically had two groups. They had a diet refeed group, 13 participants did that. And they had 14 participants do the continuous dieting group as I already discussed. Now uh, this study was seven weeks in duration. Uh, so it, it wasn't terribly long, but wasn't terribly short. And what they did is they had an average calorie deficit of about 25% uh, reduction in their calories. So whatever their, whatever their, their calorie deficit was, uh, their calorie maintenance was, they took 25% off of that. And that's what they dieted on. Now, this was the average uh, for both participants, but I'm going to show you how they differed in, in, the, in the picture below. Uh, they also did resistance uh, training. So they did exercise, um, they did resistance training four days per week. Uh, and it was basically an upper body, lower body split. And then they also did 30 minutes of low intensity, steady state cardio uh, and or uh, moderate intensity, steady state cardio, two days per week. 
So all participants were essentially doing uh, exercise six days a week, four days of the weight training, and then uh, two days a week of the uh, low intensity or moderate intensity aerobic cardio. Doesn't matter which group you're in, everybody had the same supervised type program, everybody was pushed, etc. Now the main difference was in how the diets were done. As you can see in the top picture uh, here, or the bottom picture rather, the continuous diet group had a consistent 25% deficit for the seven days, uh, yielding a weekly average of 25%. Obviously, they did that for seven weeks. Now the, the repeat group, they did it a little bit different. They also averaged 25%, but in order to average the same, you can see that the caloric deficit Monday through Friday was more aggressive. So they had to put these individuals in a 35% calorie deficit. And why did they have to go 35? Because on Saturday and Sunday, they ate 100% of the calories. So they were in at, in, in, at an energy uh, balance at that point in time. So to make up for the two days that they were in balance and keep them consistent with the continuous diet group, they had to be more aggressive in the other day. So if, if you average out the deficits and the, and the two maintenance days, you're going to see that the weekly average basically is 25%. So this is actually really good because both groups had a 25% deficit in there. Now, this table here, you can see that it actually shows what the baseline calorie intake was and what the, the, the macronutrient makeup, the carbohydrate, the protein, the fat. Um, and you can see that they're actually very similar between the groups. And you can see that the, the calorie deficit between the groups was also very similar. They were in that about 25% deficit for both. So we had very nice, uh, consistent uh, groups, not a, not a big difference between the groups. Nothing essentially was statistically significant, except that both groups were statistically significant, eating less calories during the diet. And let's see what happened here with the results. So uh, again, I told you guys all the variables that they measured, um, but let's focus specifically on the highlighted ones there which are your fat-free mass, and this is all in kilograms. Uh, if you're not good at converting kilograms to pounds, basically there's 2.2 pounds in one kilogram, so you can go ahead and do that conversion. Uh, the other thing we're gonna look at is your, um, your dry fat-free mass, so I explained what that was. This is basically your fat-free mass, and then they, they took away the, the water component of the system, which they measured, and then that's your dry fat-free mass. So this is basically your, your true muscle tissue, and then the other, things that are fat-free as well without the water weight in them. And then the last thing that they measured was the resting metabolic rate. So you can see what happened here. It's very interesting that the fat-free mass, for example, in the, in the repeat group, uh, while they did drop some fat-free mass, the change between the, the, the fat-free mass pre to post was only 0.4 kilograms. But the change in fat-free mass pre to post for the continuous diagram, they lost 1.3 kilograms. So that's basically three times as much. Now remember, it's very important whenever you're dieting to try to maintain your fat-free mass because that's gonna help your metabolism stay a little bit higher uh, through, throughout the day. So we wanna preserve as much fat-free mass as possible. So at least in this one study, we found some positive results with that. Uh, the dry fat-free mass, same thing, you can see that the continuous diet group lost 1.9 kilograms of fat-free mass, whereas the uh, repeat group only lost 0.2 pounds of dry fat-free mass. And then lastly, we're gonna look at the metabolism. 
So resting metabolic rate, did it change? So it decreased in both groups, but as you can see here in the repeat group, it, they only lost an average of about 38 calories per day. Whereas the, uh, the actual continuous diet group, they lost about 78 calories per day, which actually um, was a, a good amount of extra calories that they don't get to eat. So this, 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 uh, the results of this, uh, these, uh, uh, this one study are actually very good. Uh, here you can actually see the changes in fat mass in kilograms for the repeat group and for the continuous group. Uh, and, and the individual lines are all of the individual participants. So one thing that you can see with fat mass is that all individuals, whether they were in the, in the repeat group or the continuous group, uh, actually lost uh, some uh, body fat. And in fact, you can see that the repeat group actually lost a little bit more body fat for the most part. The other one is the fat-free mass because I, we, we look at often at averages in studies, but it's important to understand that people are different and there are inter-individual differences between these. And what you can see here with the repeat group and the continuous group is that um, basically in the repeat group, a majority of the people didn't lose fat-free mass, but there are some people that did lose fat-free mass. However, if you look at the continuous group, a much larger percentage of the individuals actually lost fat free mass. So what are some of the take home findings for this diet repeat study? So we can see that repeats help to preserve fat free mass and dry fat free mass better compared to the continuous dieting group, which are, those are gonna help impact your metabolism, which is the next tab over. So resting metabolic rate was uh, better maintained slightly with the diet refeed, which is going to help to uh, reach fat loss levels a little bit more efficiently. So why is it that these diet refeeds work? Well, the, there were a few theories that were discussed is that the two days of the refeeds blunted the catabolic environment for, for muscle. So basically, whenever you're in a calorie deficit, you create a catabolic environment. So that's, that's going to be detrimental to muscle. But the diet repeat group, they were in a very strong caloric deficit for those few days, but then they were up to maintenance. So two days out of the week, they were not doing that. And the way they did their study for most of them, it was Monday through Friday, they were on the caloric deficit. Saturday and Sunday, they were at maintenance. Again, they weren't overeating, they were only at maintenance. And the, the food that they ate to get to maintenance was in the form of carbohydrates. Uh, the other thing that we could that, that the authors discussed in the study was that the two days of the carbohydrate intake during the refeeds elevated muscle glycogen stores, which is a good thing. If you actually have more glycogen stored in the muscle, then you're potentially going to be able to uh, work harder when you're in the weight room. Uh, so the other, the other theory is that the elevated carbohydrate intakes increase the endogenous insulin concentrations. And insulin is a very uh, anabolic hormone, and it actually helps to uh, prevent muscle protein, muscle protein breakdown. So whenever you have these higher levels of the uh, carbohydrate intake on the Saturday and Sunday, those two days per week, the insulin levels are going to naturally go up higher. And that's actually a good thing because it may help to suppress muscle protein breakdown. The next thing is, is that keeping fat free mass can help to maintain the resting metabolic rate. Uh, so that's definitely a contributing uh, factor. And then the lastly is, is that eating at maintenance uh, actually can help in the adaptive thermogenesis over time.
So let's talk now about the diet break study. We've discussed diet refeeds in, the, in previously. Now let's talk about diet breaks. So remember, diet breaks are continuous. You, you do an energy restriction for a little bit. Then you do a diet break of a string of four or more days. One of the, the original studies was known as the MATADOR study. MATADOR stands for Minimizing Adaptive Thermogenesis and Deactivating Obesity Rebound. And in this, in this particular study, they used uh, 47 obese men. Now, only 36 of them actually finished the study. Uh, they were average 39 years old, uh, average weight about 111 kilograms and 110 for the, uh, the ones that went uh, on, the, on the intermittent component. And they were, again, all obese. They measured very specific variables similar to the diet break study. They measured body mass, they measured fat mass, they measure fat-free mass, they measure metabolic rate. The only variable you don't see on there is the dry fat-free mass. So let's see uh, how this study was broken down. So in this study, uh, 17 of the participants were going in the intermittent type of uh, diet, uh, and uh, 19 of them went on the continuous diet. The length of the intervention actually varied between the two. They Both groups actually dieted and were in a caloric deficit for 16 weeks. But because of the nature of the intervention, the ones that were doing the intermittent dieting, uh, they actually did eight weeks, or they would do, I'm sorry, a two period of the diet uh, on the energy restriction, followed by a two week period on the, uh, on the energy maintenance. And then they alternated. So it was two weeks of energy restriction, two weeks of maintenance, two weeks of restriction, two weeks of maintenance, so on and so forth. So in order to accumulate 16 weeks of being in an energy restriction, it required 30 weeks. Now, the continuous diet group, because they just were in a deficit the whole entire time, it only took them 16 weeks. The mean calorie deficit for both groups was about 33%, and the macronutrient intake was about 25 to 30% fat, about 15 to 20% protein, and then the rest uh, of the calories were coming in the form of carbohydrates. Now, what's interesting here is um, we, we are, we're going to see some, some changes in the, in the fat mass and the fat-free mass. So you actually see in the top, you're going to see the, the, uh, the actual changes in the uh, continuous group uh, and the diet group. Um, now, in these two pictures that I have here, the top one is the, the, ones, the 16 week protocol. And then a few of those actually came at a six-month follow-up afterwards. So if we actually look at the fat mass, you can see that the intermittent group actually lost 12.3 kilograms, whereas the continuous group only lost eight kilograms. Uh, so that's a pretty significant difference. Uh, their, their resting metabolic rate, you can also see that the resting metabolic rate decreased in both groups. However, the intermittent group, it only decreased by about 502 calories per day. And for the continuous diet group, it uh, decreased by 624 calories per day. Now, this is very important news, but uh, also important is the second component, which is what happens six months. Because unfortunately, when people lose weight, a large percentage of the population regains the weight in a very small period of time. So what happens after the fact is really important. So this, uh, this study actually followed uh, a subset of those individuals over a six month period. And what we see is that those that were doing the uh, intermittent dieting actually were able to maintain most of their weight loss 
compared to those that were doing the continuous dieting group. And similarly with their metabolic rate, the metabolic rate was still lower in, in both groups, but the intermittent dieting group, their, cal their overall calorie expenditure uh, for uh, resting energy expenditure was only 452 calories on average. It, it went down by that much. But, but for the continuous diet group, it went, it went down by 548 calories. So continuing on with this Matador diet break study, uh, here we have two graphs. Uh, one on the top, you see the amount of weight loss, the top, top left, where you have the continuous group, and then you have the intermittent dieting group. And you can, you can see that in the first few weeks, they actually lost a similar amount of weight. But as time went on, closer to that 16-week, that fat got larger and larger to the point that that continuous diet group actually ended up losing uh, more weight uh, overall, more fat mass overall uh, over the course of the, the diet period. Uh, the next the next picture there actually shows the the amount of weight that was lost uh, during the energy restriction and during the uh, energy break period. So you can see that a large amount of weight was lost in the first two weeks of the energy restriction. And they actually, even though they were in a in, in eating at calorie maintenance, they still lost a little bit of weight at the first energy break. Second energy break, they actually uh, maintained. Uh, third energy break, they lost a little bit as well as the fourth energy break. Uh, and then the only time they gained a little bit of weight was the second to the last uh, energy break, uh, which is the last one. Uh, and they gained only about half a kilogram. But then, of course, they made up for it uh, during the, the deficit of the, the following week period. So this is a nice generalized overview. And uh, actually, the slide shows everything in terms of pounds. So what we see here is this is the way that the, the, the study was laid out. So on the top, we have the continuous dieting group where they basically were eating at a 33% deficit. So uh, if, if uh, they were eating, to make the math easy, if 1,000 calories was maintenance, which it wasn't, but 1,000 calories was maintenance, a 33% deficit would mean that they were eating 670 calories uh, over that course of time. Uh, but they had a 33% deficit continuous all the way through for the 16-week period. Uh, so this group, they lost a total of uh, 20 pounds. Uh, they lost 50% less fat than the uh, intermittent dieting group, and they had a bigger decrease in metabolism as we saw earlier in those tables. Uh, now, if we look at the graph below here, now you see how they've spread it out. They were actually eating at a 33% deficit for two weeks, then they were at maintenance for two weeks, 33% deficit for two weeks, maintenance for two weeks. This continued for 30 weeks, two weeks on deficit, two weeks on maintenance. Uh, this group actually lost significantly more weight. They lost a total of 31 pounds. Uh, they lost 50% more fat over the course of time frame. And when we looked at their metabolism, they actually had less of a decrease in their metabolic rate. So the take-home findings for uh, the Matador study is that diet breaks resulted in more weight loss and more fat loss compared to the continuous dieting group. Secondly, resting metabolic rate was better maintained with the diet break group. And then remember the, that slide with the graph at the six month post. So six months after the intervention, more weight remained off in the, in the uh, intermittent dieting group. Uh, they were able to have their fat free mass increase and they were able to have a higher resting metabolic rate than compared to the continuous dieting group. So why is it that the diet breaks work? Well, some of the similar reasoning as the diet, uh, the diet break, the diet repeats is, is follows here. 
So they have a greater thermogenic effect of food during periods of energy balance. So obviously we talked about the thermogenic effect of food and, and that it actually contributes to overall metabolism, total daily energy expenditure. So with these particular periods, during that two week period of the diet repeat, the thermogenic effect of food is gonna be higher. They're also gonna have a greater uh, activity energy expenditure. So we talked about potentially exercise, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. They're gonna be fairly more active during that two week period because they're actually getting more calories. Um, and then eating at maintenance may also attenuate that adaptive thermogenesis process, which again, adaptive thermogenesis is the decrease in overall caloric expenditure not explained simply by the losses in body weight or fat mass. Uh, and we know that we have a better preservation of the resting metabolic rate. So uh, this Matador Diabrake study is uh, another piece of evidence that actually uh, shows how diet breaks can actually be potentially uh, beneficial. So after we read these studies, um, now we, we might say it's like, well, why doesn't everybody do it? Well, we need to consider Look at the big picture. There are pros and cons to diet repeats and diet breaks. So some of the pros, as we saw in both of these studies, is that it may attenuate the decreases in fat-free mass and resting metabolic rate. So these are good things. You can uh, preserve, hopefully, more muscle mass and other fat-free tissue. Uh, you can preserve your metabolism, keeping the resting metabolic rate a little bit higher. Uh, we found that you have similar, if not superior, losses in fat mass versus continuous dieting. Uh, so in the diet repeat uh, group, we saw that there were similar amounts of fat loss, but better preservation of fat-free mass and, uh, and, and better preservation of your resting metabolic rate. Now, in the, in the second study, the Matador study, we actually found that we actually had better losses of fat-free mass or fat mass rather in this, in this uh, intermittent dieting group compared to the continuous group. Uh, it may also attenuate adaptive thermogenesis, which we've already discussed that in both groups. It may improve the workout intensity or the activity energy expenditure. So this is your non-exercise activity thermogenesis and your exercise activity thermogenesis. As a result of having periodic breaks where you're not in a deficit, you may have more energy to work out maybe at a higher intensity, uh, work out a little harder, or maybe just move overall more uh, with your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And then lastly, it, you, it may help you to adhere to the diet program because you don't think like I have to go continuously for 16 weeks on a deficit. You know that if you're doing a diet repeat, for example, that you, get, you have to go on a deficit for five days, but then you get to eat at maintenance for two days. So instead of thinking of 16 continuous weeks of being in a deficit, essentially you go five days on, two days off. And then there's different ways you can break that, but uh, in this particular study, that's the way they did it. Or vice versa, you could maybe go uh, doing a calorie deficit for one or two weeks, and then you could do a diet break for one or two weeks, which was similar to the Matador study where they did it a two week on, two week off fashion. And this may improve adherence because the amount of time you have to diet for is not quite so long. Now, there are some cons to this though. Uh, one is it may be difficult to stay in control during periods of energy maintenance. So remember, it's very important that during energy maintenance, you're not gorging and eating everything in sight. You have to eat only at your energy maintenance, but it may be hard once you kind of let loose on eating a little bit and loosen the reins 
to control that. So that's one thing that's very important is the adherence. Um, another big thing is that, as you saw in the Matador study, is it requires a longer period of time to do that. So the continuous dieting group was successful in 16 weeks, but the diet break study actually required 30 weeks to accomplish, uh, well, it accomplished better fat loss, but they still, it took them 30 weeks to do so compared to 16 weeks. So depending on how much time you allot yourself to do these diets, you need to put that into account. Uh, now with the diet a refeeds, it's a little bit different, uh, but the important thing, as you noted in the, in the Campbell study with the diet refeeds, that the caloric deficit was much more aggressive. So instead of being at a 25% deficit for seven days in a row, they had to be at a 35% deficit for five days in a row. And then they got to eat at maintenance for those two days. Uh, and that's the only way they were able to do it. Um, and then the last component that's a concern is it may decrease overall adherence, meaning uh, how disciplined are you really when during those diet breaks or those diet repeats, are you really kind of sticking to eating only at maintenance and not necessarily overgorging? Uh, because it may be hard to kind of uh, loosen, loosen the reins a little bit and then have to tighten them again every so often. So a lot of this is individualized based on the person and you have to really see if this strategy or one of these strategies will work for the individual. So some of the practical applications, again, it's not suited for everyone. Uh, it, you have to work with people individually, see what's gonna work for them, uh, see if they have the time to do it. Uh, the other thing that you wanna consider is that the periods of eating at energy maintenance must remain uh, at or near energy maintenance or fat loss will not occur. People often forget this part is that eating during the energy maintenance, you can't just go crazy and eat all this extra food. Uh, the second thing that's critical is most of the calories ideally should come in the form of protein. Um, it, uh, I'm sorry, in the form of carbohydrate, protein and fat should remain somewhat consistent. So most of the extra calories when you're doing the diet repeat or the diet break should come in the form of carbohydrate. The other thing that uh, is very important is you need to have a higher protein intake. So anywhere between 1.8 grams to 3.3 grams per kilogram per day uh, seems to be very effective uh, during the periods of uh, both energy maintenance and energy restriction, uh, as uh, this can actually help to maintain fat-free mass and reduce fat mass more effectively. And there's a lot of research actually showing the importance of having a relatively higher protein diet for any type of fat loss program. Next thing that we wanna consider is that the overall energy restriction should not be overly aggressive. When we see the literature here, uh, we saw that in Campbell's study, they, they were at a 25% deficit. In the, uh, in the Matador study, they were at roughly a 33% deficit. So a good healthy range might be anywhere from 20 to 35%. In the Campbell study, you saw that the, the highest deficit was 35% on the Monday through Friday and Saturday and Sunday, they at 100%. Um, now, the other things that you wanna consider when you're doing these strategies is that there are many ways to set it up. So uh, the one study showed five days of energy restriction followed by two days of maintenance, but it doesn't have to be that way. Maybe you do three days of energy restriction, one day of maintenance, and then you repeat. So there's a lot of ways in which you can, you can set that up uh, to, to make it work for you. Diet breaks can also be set up similarly. So example, it could be one week of energy restriction followed by one week of energy maintenance, or you could do it like the Matador study where you go 
two weeks on, two weeks off. And the, obviously the possibilities are somewhat endless into what works. Uh, sometimes what actually uh, works nicely is to maybe do the repeats and the diet breaks a little less frequently in the beginning uh, when your body is responding well to, to the diet. And then as you get further along, you may actually need to implement more repeats because your metabolism may be trying to fight you. So if you can give into it a little bit and uh, you, can, you can actually feed it a little bit more, then maybe your metabolism will relax a little bit and it's not going to be as efficient as possible with giving it as little food. And these are all my references. Uh, you can see that there are quite a few of them. And in case you need to get a hold of me, uh, here is my email address, gscalon at csusb.edu. Uh, website, you can find me on my school uh, email address, which is www.csusb.edu. It was a pleasure to have you.